Okay, perfect. So I think we're going to kick off now. I think we have a good number of attendees. So thank you everyone for joining us today for the book launch of Dr. Simon Mabon's new book, Houses Built on Sand, Sovereignty, Violence and Revolution in the Middle East. My name is Taif Al-Khwari. I am a research assistant at the LSC Middle East Center. And with me today is Simon Mabon, who is a senior lecturer in international relations at Lancaster University. University, where he is also the director of the Richardson Institute and the director of the Sectarianism, Proxies and Desectarianization de um, Project, also known as CEPAD. He is the author of a range of books and articles on the Middle East and international politics, including Houses Built on Sand, Violent Sectarianism and Revolution in the Middle East, which we'll be discussing today and which I highly, highly recommend. He's also authored a number of other books, including Saudi Arabia and Iran, Power and Rivalry in the Middle East, The Origins of ISIS, The Collapse of Order and Revolution in the Middle East, and The Struggle for Supremacy, Saudi Arabia and Iran. Uh, in 2016 and 2017, he also served as academic advisor to the House of Lords International Relations Committee. Um, so Simon will be speaking for 15 minutes today, and then we'll have plenty of time for Q&A afterwards. If you do have a question, feel free to type it um, into the Q&A box on the right-hand corner of your screen. Um, and yeah, without further ado, I will um, hand it over to Simon. And also just quickly to say that this um, event is being recorded. So over to you, Simon. Great, thank you very much, Taif. Uh, I must start by thanking everyone at the LSE's Middle East Center. Um, thank you, Taif, thank you, Nadine, thank you, Toby Dodge for uh, putting me in contact and making this happen. I'm gonna make... Uh, my PowerPoint visible so you don't have to look at me throughout the presentation and fingers crossed this works whilst I am doing so I will just say thank you as well to everyone for for coming along today uh, it's pretty um, pretty exciting to see so many of you here and and listening to some of my thoughts about a new book houses built on sand so this, uh, the idea for this book started, um, well, God, a long time ago now. I remember talking to, to colleagues and friends about it at Wokmez in, in Turkey back in 2014. And it's, it's been sort of percolating since then, but its roots have, have I guess, a, a deeper resonance than that, pertaining to broader curiosity, I would say, with regard to, to states, sovereignty, power, and, and how to understand all of these things in the contemporary Middle East. So I tried to put all of these things together in, in a book that, that seemed like a good idea at the time, but as I was writing it, as so often is the case with these things, the scope broadened and broadened, and it ended up being about 120,000 words. So I'm gonna do my best to try and condense that 120,000 words into 15 minutes, somehow. So, um, so wish me luck, but, what I tried to do in the book is, is answer a number of, of key questions. And, and these were, broadly speaking, pertaining to the Arab uprisings, but, but also much, much deeper than that. I was particularly curious as to why the Arab uprisings took place with such, such dramatic outcomes in some states, but not so much in, in others. So, for example, why did, uh, why did the, the rule of Hosni Mubarak fall in Egypt, but then 
um, why did Saudi Arabia not really receive any type of of dissent? Why was there no serious day of rage beside one person turning up to a square in Riyadh? And from that, there was the question of how we understand political projects more broadly. From those two questions, I was also curious as to how we understand the roots of sovereign power. And then from that, how is it contested? How do we understand sovereignty? These are all questions that were sort of right at the heart of my quest to understand why certain states were prone and ultimately subjected to successful revolutions that deposed authoritarian rulers. Uh, and as I started working on it, I started thinking about state, sovereignty, power, um, the nature of the polis broadly. And then, of course, the regional repercussions of this contestation and the way that all of these things play out. Because it strikes me that this is all, um, that, that there are ideas, issues, ideologies, identities, events that resonate across the region, given what, what Paul Noble once termed a vast uh, regional echo chamber. So I wanted to understand these things. I wanted to understand how, how states were affected by the uprisings and how they managed to, how rulers managed to circumvent popular protests that had had such dramatic impacts across the region. And then to look at the, the broader regional repercussions of this contestation. And so as I was doing this then, I started to think more, more in depth about the nature of politics and the nature of states. So it struck me that if we're looking at why, why the uprisings took place and how they, how they played out, we were looking at it in particular political projects. We were looking at it in states. And, and states are, I guess, fundamental to contemporary understandings of, of politics. And politics is fundamentally about the survival of the species. So what quickly became apparent was that we needed to look at states conceptually. We needed to understand what it was when we're talking about a state. And, and that, of course, is such a, a vast set of debates that it quickly became unwieldy, unmanageable to spend time talking about different typologies of state. Or if I wanted to go into detail and understand why uh, protests took place in certain ways in particular states, but not in others. So I, I quickly thought that ideas of Charles Tripp, Charles Tilly, Joel Migdal, etc., where states were defined as sort of uh, not immutable facts, but sites of performativity, um, political projects through uh, designed through inclusion and exclusion, this sense of closing off and inside against an outside and contested. These were all ideas that, that resonated with my, my own philosophical position. And from that, of course, there was this sense that within a state, within the broader understanding of a state, is this drive to have a form of governance designed to instill order and regulate life. But as soon as I started to, to go down this route, it, it struck me that what I was really interested in wasn't so much states and typologies of states themselves or, or political system, systems in and of themselves, but rather sovereignty and, and the ways in which ruling elites, regimes, and I'll use that, those two terms interchangeably for the, for the talk. I explain it more in detail in the book, but for time, I'll just use them interchangeably. Uh, it struck me that, that in accordance with a sovereign, sovereign state or a sovereign regime, there were a whole host of different orders and processes that were designed to instill order and regulate life. 
and of course competing visions of order um, competing processes um, competing sources of power but ultimately it was about sovereignty that i was interested in and the way in which rulers ruled over um, their peoples the way in which the powerful exerted um, power and as i was looking into this I, I discovered the work of Giorgio Agamben, um, an Italian philosopher whose work is, is rich, uh, in many ways impregnable, but absolutely fascinating in terms of understanding contemporary sovereignty. I won't go into detail, but there are a couple of, of key concepts that I think are important here. Agamben says that he's particularly interested in this idea of a state of exception, which is a paradigm of government which is predicated on the ability to determine the exception. So from that, he means, um, when is it that the law can be suspended? Uh, all constitutions typically have a clause that will allow for its suspension and protection of itself. And Agamben wants to interrogate the ways in which that decision about the exception comes about. And he's particularly interested in where the law applies. And he, he relates that decision about the exception to this understanding of, of sovereign power more broadly, building on the likes of, of Carl Schmidt and Michel Foucault. He's got a, a biopolitical project here that's that basically seeking to regulate life through an inclusive exclusion. And by that, he's meaning that he wants to understand the ways in which people can be regulated into um, the, the biopolitical machineries of government and they can be captured within all of that. And they, they will be forced to obey these biopolitical machineries, but they might not necessarily be protected by them. And that's what he's talking about with this distinction between what he terms bios and zoe, this idea of a political life and a natural life or a bare life. And, and it's this idea of bare life and the distinction between bare and, and the, the fulfilled um, political life that's essential to Agamben's thought, this ability to, to strip meaning from life. And again, this, this is in the book in, in more detail, but, but these two points I think are really important here. The ability to create a state of exception whereby the government, the regime can do whatever is deemed necessary in order to protect itself through the suspension of the through the, through the suspension of the rule of law, I got there in the end, and then the ability to strip meaning from life and thus including it within the political project through its exclusion. So that's what he's trying to explore. And he does this across a whole canon of work. But what I do in, in the book is I apply it to the history of, of the Middle East or the modern history of the Middle East from the, the end of the First World War onwards. And so early on in the project, I trace the, uh, the history of states the history of political projects from the 1920s to the, the present day. And I do that in, the, in a way to, to try and understand relations between rulers and ruled and how the ways in which rulers have sought to regulate lives of their people across history. And this involves looking at the emergence of political projects, dealing with relations with colonial powers, who in many ways left a whole set of of governance processes and governance structures that could be used by rulers. And I'll give you an example here. A lot of the Israeli um, laws that are being used to, to justify demolishing housing in East Jerusalem are predicated on old British uh, mandatory laws. So there's a, a real colonial residue there. 
And then, of course, you have identity and ideology embedded within the governance structures of, of political projects. So you have ruling elites trying to draw on a whole host of, of issues and identities and ideologies, tribalism, pan-Arabism, pan-Islamism, as a way of engendering support. And in doing so, closing off an inside, a particular community, against an outside. And that closing off an inside against an outside is, is really central to what it is that that states were trying to do and what I'm trying to explore in the book. And this was all enshrined in, in various constitutions um, across the, the history of the region. And in, in the book, I, I note that Islam is the state religion in all but four of the, the states that I'm looking at. So obviously religion plays a prominent role here. And within constitutions, there's ideas of citizenship, which itself is a tool of inclusion and, and exclusion. And you only have to look at the case of the Badun or the Palestinians to see how this inclusive exclusion is, is so prominent. And then political systems, of course, facilitate this in, in more detail. You, you look at the Muhasasa system in, in Iraq as a means of identifying how sovereign power regulates life through including and excluding. And the history of, of the region is one that is replete with these types of examples. Um, institutional discrimination, distinctions between urban and rural, um, rich and poor, along sect-based lines, along ethnic lines. And often this is enshrined within legal structures of the state. But it's also um, a spatial aspect. It's also um, about regulating space. Sovereign power is about regulating the, the world, the space over which it lays claim. And in the book, I talk about ideas of nomos and or nong and or tung. But I'm not going to go into detail with that here because that again is, is a bit tangential to the, the, the narrow or the broad focus that I'm trying to cover in the, in the presentation. But what I will say is that space is, as Akile Mbembe suggests, the raw material of sovereignty. It's the, the arena in which, um, in which politics plays out. And sovereignty for Gambon is fundamentally spatial. So what's, what I was looking at when I was looking at, at sovereign power and the contestation of political projects is fundamentally spatial. And you look at the history of, of states across the region and it's a history of efforts to lay claim to space, to transform space in particular ways. Uh, space, of course, is also a site of the mundane as well as the site of the spectacular and the revolutionary. It's a symbiotic, space is symbiotic. It's constructed by um, those that are within it and around it, but it also shapes those that are engaging with it. And I'll give you a couple of examples here. On, on the left, you see a photograph taken in the old city of Jerusalem in 1967, whereby after um, the Israeli Defense Forces seized the old city from the Jordanians, they, uh, they destroyed the old Moroccan quarter that was in front of the Western Wall, the holiest site in Judaism, in an attempt to transform meaning in the old city and give access to, uh, for Jews to the Western Wall. So there was a real transformative project there, not just in terms of the Western Wall, but in terms of the old city of Jerusalem, in terms of the, the gentrification of Jaffa around this time, and in terms of settlement projects that have followed in the years to come. And on the right, there's a photograph from, from Manama, and here we have a different type of, of regulation of space. You see, a, this is one of the main highways that runs across the, the, the island of Bahrain, um, from Muharraq all the way across to the, the King Fahd Causeway. 
And you see on this, this highway photographs of, of the king, of the monarchy, looking down over the streets as if to say, look, this is, a, this is an al-Khalifa country. This is an al-Khalifa state. A, a form of what Johan Galton calls structural violence. And on the left-hand side of the photo, you can just about make it out, is uh, an intersection whereby there are armed police stationed. So this sense of, of violence and this sense of an effort to regulate life, either through structural aspects or through physical force. And then, of course, by 2011, people had had enough, halas, and, uh, and we saw the protests taking place. The people want the fall of the regime. They took to the streets, and we saw what happened. But, but as I argue, this wasn't just an explosion that, that no one saw coming, although in many ways uh, academics and policymakers missed this. But if they'd have been looking at a longer history of what was happening, there were serious structural factors that were, that were a real source of frustration for many in terms of economics, in terms of capital flight, corruption, the lack of access to basic needs, humiliation, human dignity. And then the, the uprisings took place and there was a message of hope, optimism, which spread very quickly across borders and provided an alternative vision of politics. And that resulted in and this gathering of people in, in spaces, in public spaces across, across the region from Egypt to Tunisia to Bahrain. And you saw protests playing out in a range of different ways. Again, on the left, you have Tahrir Square. And on the right, you have a photo taken from the souk in Manama, um, where you saw the, the spatial manifestation of protests playing out in different ways through art, through graffiti, um, through, through counter narratives, through messaging. So there was a real visible and spatial um, set of, of debates going on, playing out across space. And the important point to note about the Bahrain example here is that there was also an Arabic and an English dimension, and that there were efforts to internationalize the protests in Bahrain. And I think that's, that's important because all of this took place within the context of, of a broader sort of geopolitical realignment. And I'll, I'll touch on that in a minute. But the regime, oh, regimes quickly fought back. Uh, the regime fights back is the title of, of the penultimate chapter of the book, but regimes quickly fought back against protesters. And what they did was they deployed these mechanisms and machineries of control that they'd been cultivating for, for decades. Um, these were economic, political, legal, military, security, um, whatever forms of technologies of power that they were able to deploy they deployed and in many ways they were um, they were able to create and cultivate bare life and this this emerged from the declaration of states of emergency in in a number of different uh, states across the region on the left here i have a photo of a bahraini journalist eman salehi who was killed by a member of the al khalifa uh, she was shot and this uh, this chap from the ruling family turned himself into the police station and he was later released without charge. And what I think she is a really good example of, uh, aside from it being an absolutely devastating tale, is this sense of individuals being abandoned in bare life, this sense that, that people can be killed with impunity, that they're forced to obey the law, but they have few protections from it. So there's this creation of bare life where people are pushed to the margins of life and, and placed in really devastating conditions. And of course, there's the sectarianization processes and broader processes of, of geopolitical realignment across the region, which typically involved the cultivation of a new form of inclusion and exclusion 
along sect-based lines, geopoliticized sect-based lines within this sense of um, an effort to demonize Iran. So all of this, I would argue, takes place within the context of a broader contestation between rulers and, and ruled. And it's something that we, we continue to see for this day, to this day. The sense that there is an ongoing struggle over the state, access to the state, access to the resources of the state, access to um, institutions, the sense of having a degree of economic, political, social, cultural reform, space and opportunities, the sense of, of having a more tolerant form of, of inclusion rather than, than uh, very clear processes of exclusion. There's this sense that rulers, relations between rulers and ruled are parabolic. They're constantly ebbing and flowing, oscillating, as rulers seek to impose their will and order over their populations, be they citizens or not. And we're seeing this, of course, erupting in the, in the end, towards the end of 2019 with the protests in Lebanon and Iraq, which I think demonstrate that this is the latest incarnation of a broader struggle between rulers and ruled, shaped by the contingencies of time and space. Some people have talked about this as, as the Arab Spring 2.0, but I think that this is perhaps a misnomer. And rather, what we're seeing is a, a much longer set of protests a much longer struggle over the relationship between rulers and ruled that has been playing out since the creation of, of states in the, in, the, um, in the Middle East, in West Asia. And this, of course, is, is shaped by the, the nature of domestic, regional and international politics, the way that all of these things interact. But it's a fundamentally political struggle over the survival of the species and an effort to try and position what individuals want their polis to look like and also how regimes can try and ensure their survival in the face of what they seem they define as existential challenges so i think i'll leave my talk there i think i've gone slightly over time so i apologize but i hope you'll forgive me thank you so much Thanks so much, Simon. That was really great. Um, so I'm going to start by asking you a few questions and then we'll open it up to Q&A. Um, if you do want to ask Simon any questions, feel free to type um, your questions into the Q&A box in the right hand corner of your screen. Um, so first of all, I want to pick up um, on what you said about the sort of uh, latest protests in Iraq and in Lebanon as being a manifestation of a larger um, series of con testations. Um, so in the book, uh, what really interested me was um, the chapter where you looked at the city. You looked at the city as a space where, um, as a site of dominance, as a site of violence, but also a site where um, national identity is forged um, and also contested, particularly through imagery. And I really like what you said about um, not underestimating the power of the image in the Middle East. So I was wondering whether you could talk a little bit more about this, particularly in relation to what we've seen in Lebanon and what we've seen in Iraq um, recently, and which we continue to see to some extent even now. Yeah, well, I guess maybe the best way to start is to say a picture says a thousand words, right? A picture is, is very easy to, to spread and to, to share, to, to disseminate very, very quickly, and then people can interpret that in, in whatever way they, they want. Um, it, it doesn't have to be written in a particular language. It translates across cultures, across communities, across um, political projects. And 
if done in the right way, it can really resonate at the heart of, of an individual or a community. And you can express a, a great deal with, with a picture, be it positive or negative. You can, you can express a whole host of different emotions. And I think we've, we've seen that across the, the history of the 20th and into the 21st centuries. Um, there's a whole host of different images that are being used in particular ways at particular times as a way of, of engendering um, support, anger, hope, frustration, depending on the cause, depending on the type of image that's, that's being used. Um, in the book, I talk about uh, the image of a, of a woman who was forcibly half stripped by, um, by security forces. And that was an image that, that took on huge um, levels of power uh, and, and anger because of what it symbolized. And that again, spread across the region. You saw uh, in one of the slides, I, I took a photo of the souk in, in Manama and on the wall, there were, there were photographs and posters that had, some of them had been stripped off. They were uh, posters of, of political prisoners and martyrs. So again, there's this sense that the images are evocative. They're able to, to spread messages in, in ways that are, there are often harder to to share in a sort of in a written form uh, it's easier to 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 share things when they're when they're depicted in in imagery um in terms of the the current protests i think to be honest you're far more equipped to talk about iraq than than i am given that you were recently there but uh again it's i think with regard to the city the city serves as a as a canvas for, for people to express themselves, for the people to try and shape the, the political landscape around them, that people are able to, to use the cityscape as a, as a canvas to depict frustrations, as a rallying cry, as a, as a space to denounce or praise particular groups. And, and that, of course, then gets put on social media or gets, gets disseminated around various ways, various platforms. So I think, to be honest, the, the city chapter was one of the most interesting ones that I, that I wrote, reflecting on my own time just across the region, um, in, in the Levant, in the Gulf, uh, in North Africa, and, and seeing how cityscapes were, would, were being used by, by artists in many ways, but also by, by everyday people using graffiti or posters just trying to, to spread messages in, in a range of different ways. And I think they, cities provide an urban landscape for, for people to get a message across in a range of different ways, contingent on what they want to do. I guess it's a roundabout way of saying cities are, are really interesting. Yeah, no, I agree. <laughs> um, and also just to say that we're getting, you're getting loads of compliments on the Q&A. Everybody's thanking you for your great presentation. That's um, fine. thank you everyone. <laughs> Um, and also, I just wanted to ask you one more question before we go to the to the audience. So you also um, in the book, you say that one of the sort of main ideas you explore is that um, you look at the fragmentation of the sovereign state and you look at this post 2003. Um, and I wanted to know why you sort of locate it. Why does this fragmentation for you um, accelerate after the Iraq war um, across the Middle East? Um, and what are the implications of this for the regulation of life in the region? Sure, that's a, a good question. What I think what I try and do is 
it's sort of a couple of things. One is to trace the history of, of political projects post, um, post World War One. But then I think you're right that there are certain points that, that gain traction that start to, to give new meaning to the region. And and in the in the literature on sectarianism and on the rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran, people typically refer to the, the events of 1979, 2003, and 2011 um, as, as sort of turning points or points that exacerbated existing tensions between between sectarian communities or between um, the Saudis and the Iranians. But I think with with the events of 2003 and the removal of Iraq, uh, the toppling of Saddam Hussein, and um, the removal of Iraq as a as a major power in the region what that does is it creates a new type of geopolitical space it creates an arena for for the saudis and for the iranians to get increasingly involved in regional affairs which previously they'd, they'd been doing it but they've been doing it in in perhaps slightly more clandestine ways this becomes more overt um, it starts to to turbocharge particular issues uh, notably obviously the the rising sect-based tensions and hostility that, that others have documented so well. Um, but I think it also creates opportunities for regional realignment. And, and that in some ways brings in the United States into play. Um, and we know that the Saudis, and I document this in the book, the Saudis are, are very keen to get the United States to strike against Iran. They're very keen to to remove Iran as a threat from regional politics. And of course, we see that playing out in the, in the following decades. Um, and that really didn't happen before 2003. There was, there was maybe a period of, of burgeoning rapprochement between the two, uh, between the Saudis and the Iranians, but 2003 changed the landscape dramatically. Um, Post-war on terror, increasing American involvement in the Middle East, uh, increasing sect-based tensions, opportunities for regional rivals to, to stake a claim for, uh, for positions of, of power and, and influence across the region. So yeah, I think, I think that's why 2003 is important. Um, and then of course, shortly after that, you see the assassination of Rafiq Hariri. Uh, two years later, you then see the, um, the summer war, the 2006 war between Hezbollah and, and Israel. So it's a, I think 2003 is the start of, a, of an increasing number of uh, important events that, that impact on the, the ordering of regional politics alongside domestic politics. Um, okay, so I'll just go to some questions from um, Facebook. So the first one is, where do you situate governmentality in your work? Um, and then another question, um, someone's asking you to define how you are using the concept of geopolitics. And just to say, sorry, I can't see the names on the Facebook questions. Sorry, could you repeat the first question again, please? Sure. It's where do you situate governmentality in your work? And then the second one is please define how you are using the concept of geopolitics. Sure. Okay. So the first one is I'm deploying um, governmentality in a similar way to, to a Gambon. Um, I'm not trying to do anything different to him. He's in many ways building on Foucault. Um, he's got a, a whole host of discussions about this across, across the Homo Seca series. Um, I think... It's obviously positioned firmly within within my understanding of biopolitics and the Gambon's discussion of biopolitics. 
and I, I I use it in a way that's that's drawing heavily on the kingdom and the glory, whereby he's Agamben's interested in this sort of coming together of the police of the security sector of the law of the sovereign of of the governmental machinery and that's what i'm mostly interested in this this coming together of um, of all these different forces within the context of this governmental machinery and uh, there's a quote that if you forgive me i've completely forgotten it i've not had very much sleep in the past few weeks but that's in the book that does a good job about uh, articulating the central problem in sovereignty isn't so much X or Y. It is this sense of government and by government, he's, he's referring to governmentality and the complexity of all of these things being positioned together. Um, as for geopolitics, it's not really something that I go deeply into in the book. I'm not really looking at things in a geopolitical way more and looking at regional politics and regional relations and the ways in which um, particular issues, particular incidents impact on regional affairs. So this sense of a, a rivalry between X and Y resonates geopolitically because it affects a, a geographical area and it affects relations between states and non-state actors there. But there is, of course, also a, a discursive dimension to, to this in terms of the the cultivation of well the securitization of particular groups the securitization of um particular identities um and i spend quite a lot of time talking about that in terms of the the cultivation of a shia threat um i, I break down this notion of a shia crescent and talk about how processes of sectarianization have broader geopolitical dimensions and by that I mean of course you frame something as a threat along sector-based lines and given the shared identities that spread across borders and um, given the way that it's constructed and the way that it's framed then that process of framing that securitization or sectarianization will resonate and impact on broader regional relations so that's kind of what I'm I'm getting at in geopolitics it's not a book about geopolitics but it's a book where geopolitics features in the sense that there is a, a physical and a discursive dimension to it. Okay, so we've got a question now from Jasim, who is in Bahrain. He's saying, do you see prospects for greater political space or a shrinkage of uh, political space in the Gulf at the moment? Thanks, Jasim. Um, I fear there's probably a shrinking of political space in the Gulf because of the, the ways in which regimes across the Gulf have, have reflected on the protests, have reflected on what happened post-2011 and have in some cases collaborated, in other cases not, but they've looked at the ways in which they were, they were vulnerable and then tried to remove those, those degrees of vulnerability and use the, the tools of sovereign power as a means of doing that through um, restricting political space, restricting access to, to political parties. Um, in Bahrain, for example, there was the case of the Muslim Brotherhood that had a really prominent role to play in, in Bahraini history as a means of, of working alongside the Al-Khalifa monarchy in counterbalancing against, say, um, the Arab nationalists during the 50s and 60s. But then, and post-2011, 
they were they were prominently uh, on the side of the ruling family against the uh, the emergence of well the, the sectarianization of, of Shia groups. The the Muslim Brotherhood was seen as a key ally of the Al Khalifa, so that was that was absolutely central to what they were trying to do. But then, following broader regional developments, in particular Saudi Arabia's um, and the Emiratis' view of the uh, of the Brotherhood you see that the Bahrainis take a, a negative view of, of the Akwan and, and ban them, reducing their ability to operate across the kingdom. And that, I think, is emblematic of a closing of any form of political space, not just because of, of domestic uh, concerns, but of, of broader regional orderings amidst concerns that regional allies may have at the ways in which politics is playing out. So, yeah, I think there's a there's a reduction in political space and that in terms of direct physical access to institutions, but also then the broader access to discussions about politics. Um, and that I think is, is particularly worrying when it's taking place online, um, either through the, the policing, um, broadly speaking, the policing of discussion, and, and the restrictions being put on discussion online, but also the, the cultivation of, of bots and new technologies that's designed to, I guess, overwhelm discussion and, and do it in a way that's favorable to, to, to the opposing side. Perfect, thank you. So we have another question from Tizia, who says, how do you think the democratization of technology affects the relationship between the state and its citizens? That's a really good question. I like that. Um, I think it depends on the nature of the relationship between um, rulers and their citizens. I think if there's a positive relationship where either um, where either citizens and, and populations, I'll, I'll use populations rather than citizens because particularly in the Gulf, there's a large number of people who aren't citizens, but populations, if they have a positive relationship where they have access to um, to political institutions, to a degree of protection, welfare, et cetera, et cetera, then the democratization, I would argue, is viewed positively by citizens. And as long as citizenry is sort of compliant, then it would be viewed in a positive way by, by rulers. But I would argue that in light of the protests that have been taking place, particularly across the last decade, the democratization of, of technology, if I've understood the question right, would be viewed in a, in a rather uh, problematic way by, by rulers. And if you look at what happened in, in Egypt post-2011, there was a concerted effort for the state to, to get control of the, the ISPs, the internet service providers, to shut down, uh, basically shut down the internet as much as physically possible as a means of controlling the, the idea of, of mobilization. But there, I think what's what's interesting is that the Egyptian state overestimated the importance of the internet in operating as a mobilizing tool, forgetting that revolutions are actually driven by people, not technology. Well, so the, the next question is from John. Um, so he says he's referring to um, what you said about uh, your interest in why some state governments were toppled and why others remained in place during um, 
the uprisings of 2011. Um, and he asks, do you think there is a strong correlation between this and each state's security apparatus and the actions they took? Or do you think that there are other uh, factors that are more important? Yeah, I think there's, there's an interesting relationship between security apparatus and and the state but i think there's also a, a plethora of other factors at play and i'm thinking in particular here of egypt and in egypt obviously there was a very strong military um that that through their support behind the protesters in in well in early february i guess 2011 um uh, but then didn't throw their support behind the the counter the the revolutionaries some three years later. And that, I think, surprised many, given the close relationship that Mubarak and his senior officials had with, with the military. And if you go on the premise of that question, that you have a strong military, close ties with the government, then the government should have ridden out the, the protests because of the relationship between the two. But then I think the, the reason for that, or one of the reasons for that was because senior military officials were concerned about their own interests and the extent to which they had a great deal of financial resources tied up in, in a whole host of issues. And if there was a, a, a dramatic transformation of political life, then they could risk losing some of that. So whilst there, there is something to be said for having a close relationship, I don't think that's a guarantee. And I think if there's uh, a strong military and strong levels of security services, that certainly goes a good way in preserving the survival of, of a regime, of a ruler. Um, but I don't think it's the only thing. Um, I think that the extent to which the, the economic factor is, I think is really key here. Um, there's a huge level of capital flight out of the region. Um, there's a huge level of economic frustration. Of course, that, that still remains today in, in Lebanon and Iraq. Um, and that meant that people were willing to, to push further than perhaps they, they might have been previously, even in the face of, of incredibly strong militaries. Um, I think the willingness to, to engage in, in violence against protesters was quite important. And, and the Bahrainis and the, the GCC Peninsula Field Shield Force willingness to, to repress protesters using, using extreme violence, I think was a, a detrimental factor. It, it served as a deterrent. Um, but then I think, yeah, militaries are certainly key because they, they deter people from doing things or they can deter people from from protesting but there's also another whole host of of portfolios and and security structures security strategies um, biopolitical machineries of governance that Foucault and the Gambon would talk about that if put together in the right way can really restrict the capacity for protest um, and what I think we saw in 2011 was that people started to untangle some of those those networks and relationships, or they started to to push back against it, even in the face of of extreme violence, torture, repression, whatever it may be, that that the the offence, the human dignity, was perhaps even too much to to be afraid of of some of the the possible punishments. But I think 
in terms of boiling it down to that question, I think it's a really difficult one. And it's, it's one that I sort of explore in the book in terms of the processes. But if I was to give a one-line answer as to why did people in state X succeed worse in state Y, they didn't. I don't think it's quite as simple as saying there was a strong military there, so they didn't. If that sort of gets at the question. Um, so I'll ask you another question from Anna. Um, so she says, how important is the context? How do you tell? I think she means, how do you draw out uh, commonalities uh, between events, between violent events, between um, sectarianism in general, in, in the context of the Middle East? Um, and then I'll, I'll just ask you another question from Merv, who says, could you please give some examples of the symbiotic processes that you have just mentioned in your presentation? Sure. Um, I will be honest, I can't remember which symbiotic processes I was talking about. Um, in terms of commonalities, well, I try and remember what symbiotic processes I was talking about. Um, commonalities, yeah, I think... I think the, the earlier part of the question pertaining to context is, is key. I think you can identify particular things in the abstract, right? You can identify an act of violence in the abstract. Um, someone getting punched in the face is the same as someone getting punched in the face elsewhere, but there, there could be a whole host of different contexts to that, be it in terms of the actors involved, the times, the place, the, the method of being punched in the, the eye, the justifications for that, the aftermath, uh, the clothes that were being worn, things like that. There's a whole host of contextual factors that can, can create difference in terms of, of incidents themselves. But if you go to a, level of a, a particular level of abstraction, you can get a degree of commonality. And, and so it is possible to identify those across the region. But then... A phrase the, that I use quite a lot across the book is context-specific contingencies. And as I went back over it recently to do the preparation for this talk, it, it cropped up quite a few times. But what I'm trying to say there is that, look, yes, this event happened and it could have happened elsewhere. But the fact that it happened here at this time is a consequence of particular context and the contingencies of everyday life that meant that this event played out in the way that it did as a consequence of these these factors that may not have been the same had it been a different time a different place um and i guess there is a lot of contingency in the book right so if that sort of gets at the question a little bit uh in terms of the symbiotic relationship was this in terms of um, in terms of space, I think. Um, let me just quickly check. You could also, if, if you could clarify, uh, if the person who posed the question could clarify, then we can come back to it later if you prefer. Sure. Yeah, yeah. that might be easier. Okay, cool. <coughs> um, so the next question is from Ohot. I think, um, who is uh, tuning in from Jordan. So they're asking, um, could you tell us a little bit more about the title, uh, Houses Built on Stand? Um, 
and asking if there's some kind of relation to what you've said about space and the importance of space in the uh, relationship between the ruler and the ruled and how it manifests itself. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think there's, there's a couple of different things to it. Um, the house has a, a connotation with the state. Uh, it has a connotation with the ruling family. Um, it has this sense of a project, the idea of a of construction. You you build a house, you build a state. There's sort of an evolution in that, um, and obviously there's a, a a huge number of monarchies in the region. So there's the parallel there: the House of Saud, House of Khalifa, etc., etc. Uh, and then in terms of of sand, there's of course the the um, I guess the the desert dimension, but there's also this sense that sands move, sands shift. Uh, deserts. I, I came across a, a stat while I was doing the book that the deserts shift their location due to to desert winds and and the ways in which the earth moves and whatnot. And it struck me that that too does quite a good job of of setting up what what states do. States shift. States evolve. That they're not static, um, static features. They they don't just get created and then then stay as they were at that particular time. So there's that. But then there's also the the sense that if you build something on sand, then perhaps it's not as as strong as it it would be if it was built elsewhere. And the the thinking behind that was that you have a number of of states that have relations between rulers and rule that really aren't in the interests of people that are exploitative that are pretty devastating to those who are being ruled and as a consequence i thought that the title works on on quite a few different levels so that was my thinking behind it and actually it was something that i came up with when i was writing the first chapter so i had the title for the book quite early on in the process and it just stuck with me and um in the spirit of transparency, the publishers asked me to change it. They didn't think it did enough to uh, to have the right types of labels. They wanted some more buzzwords, some more jargon, but it just didn't feel right. It, the title had been with me for such a long time that I didn't particularly want to want to move away from it. Yeah, no, I think it's very evocative. It's very nice uh, and subtle, I think. Um, so Jonathan asks, um, what part does the social contract play in terms of the likelihood of a population rebelling against the incumbent regime? And he also asks um, if you can talk about the likelihood of unrest amongst the population of Saudi Arabia in light of the downturn in the oil market. Sure. Uh, social contracts, I think, are important. But what I've done in the book is talk more about relationships between rulers and ruled. And I guess you can view that as a form of social contract. But I try not to talk about social contracts per se, because I think they've, they've been imbued so much with, with Western political philosophy that it's perhaps a little bit problematic to then impose the idea of a social contract on a um, on on the region interestingly when i was talking about doing my interviews and talking to to people about sovereignty and telling them a bit about what i was doing 
uh, quite a number of people, particularly those that have been educated in the West, talked about Westphalia as a source of sovereignty, which I found interesting, but obviously I wanted to move away from that. And I think avoiding the idea of a social contract, particularly in those terms, was something that I wanted to do. Um, and in the book, I talk a bit about Asabia, but um, yeah, I, I wanted to avoid social contract for, for some of the reasons that we're seeing being evident in the, the Black Lives Matter mo uh, movement and ideas of decolonization. Uh, in terms of Saudi Arabia, I think there's a, a complex relationship there between rulers and rule that's been predicated on a on a ruling bargain perhaps on a um on a relationship that is quite fluid perhaps and in, in, in recent years it's 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 under undergone a, a degree of transformation um moving away from this this reliance on on extreme forms of wahhabism i think many in the Saudi state are actually quite happy about that and were, were quite positive about what MBS was doing. Um, I think, of course, the economic dimension is, is absolutely key in that it's actually quite expensive to do things in Saudi. Entertainment is expensive. Um, leisure activities are very expensive. So even though there are, there are these, um, these, these high profile events, be it, the boxing, wrestling, I don't know, music events, cinemas. These are all really expensive things to do if you're a Saudi. And while the state may be offering credit cards, these are credit cards, right? So the downturn in oil prices, I think is gonna have a big impact on people. Uh, it's gonna have a big impact in terms of what the Saudis want to do moving forward with, with NEOM. Um, I think what happens next in terms of the oil is going to be really interesting and really important. I don't think the Saudi state is anywhere near this at present, uh, but if, if such dynamics continue into the coming years, then I think you've got uh, a different dynamic, but we're talking maybe five, 10 years down the line and, and increasing pressures of the type that we're seeing now and then more, but we're not there yet. Perfect. Um, so I actually have a question which refers to this uh, Asabiya term that you mentioned. Uh, so, one sec. Uh, Jillian asks, he's, uh, I heard recently that the older Islamic concept of the state called Asabiya, which is based on a circle with eight interlocking components of equal weight. Do you think that the modern state structures are counter to Islamic concepts and cause uh, additional tensions? Wow. Yeah. Um, I'm not a scholar of Islamic thought. I'll hold my hands up right now. Um, my usage of Asabiya builds on Ibn Khaldun and Khaldun is talking about ideas of kinship. And I guess you can draw parallels with, with this idea of kinship in a, in a state, but I'm not sure that I want to elaborate on that in terms of the the islamic state I'm, I'm really sorry i think it's interesting and i'm going to look into that but my my use of asabia was more about the cultivation of of kinship that was related to to tribes and rulers cultivating this sense of kinship amongst new members um ideas of, of blood relations and things like that the idea of, of developing a sense of asabia being central to the development of a political project but I'm not, yeah, I, I'm not sure I'm 
well versed enough in, in Islamic theology to, to comment on that. Sorry, but I would be curious to hear more if you have more. Thank you. Um, okay, and then we have a really interesting question from Angelo, who asks you about the methodology that you use to write the book, um, what kind of field trips you took, um, and did you uh, conduct interviews in the region as well? Um, and also, I have my own question related to this. What do you think is the advantage of, so you don't really, from what I've read, um, you don't use a single case study and really like focus in and hone on that. You use multiple sort of smaller case studies. And I want to know what you think the advantages of approaching the book in that way are. Yeah. Um, in terms of, they're both really interesting and important questions. Um, I guess what I sought to do with the book is build on the trips that I'd been doing to the region over the past decade or so to reflect on on my experiences of traveling there reflect on interviews that i've done for a whole host of, of projects that in many ways sort of led up to this and i then supplemented it with um with interviews with people in the region and and beyond uh either by doing individual research trips or by topping up on on things that i'd already done so it was a bit of a, a mongrel methodology, if you will. And then I, I added that to a, a bit of critical discourse analysis in terms of uh, some speeches. There's some constitutional analysis in there. Uh, there's some political philosophy in there. It's, it's a real mixed methods job because there was a bunch of things that I wanted to get at that I didn't think I could just get at from interviews that I needed to sort of piece things together because the, the project when it came together was quite broad and I knew what I wanted to do. And I also knew that it faced a number of rigorous challenges methodologically and intellectually, because it's not just using one case study or two case studies, as you suggest, and dealing with that, was actually a real challenge through the book, picking up the themes that I wanted to explore and the cases that I wanted to explore whilst giving, giving due weight to the various um, states, movements, ideas, ideologies, ethnicities, identities, was really difficult, maintaining some semblance of balance. And of course, there isn't really ever going to be balance at times certain things are going to require more attention than others um but that i guess pushed me to reflect on why i was picking particular things at particular times and that i mean there's a whole host of things that i could have done differently in terms of the the chapter on the city for example that could have been done looking at say baghdad riyadh um Amman. It, it could have been done with a whole host of examples, but instead I chose to focus on Beirut, Basra and, and Jerusalem. But I thought that there were interesting stories to tell based on my own experiences and based on interviews that I'd done with people. So I think that was, that was what I tried to do, get out the stories that I'd been told, the interviews that I'd done, the interesting material, but filter that through what um, filter that through 15 years of working on the region 
in a way that tried to make it as methodologically rigorous as possible, but also tried to paint as, as big a broader picture as possible. I simultaneously painting with a broad brush and then trying to paint with a very, very fine brush to, to give some nitty gritty bits of information. And it was a challenge, I won't do it again. Okay, perfect, thank you. So I have another uh, very big question for you. Um, so Muhammad asks, Will the COVID-19 pandemic mark the end game for Iraq, Syria's and Lebanon's mass uprisings? Um, and would you say that, um, they're very big questions, would you say that Iraq, Syria, uh, Yemen and Yemen are failed, fragile or failing states? And should the UN get involved? Wow, okay. So the first one about COVID-19, I guess, you've got a choice you've got a choice of staying at home and risking starvation or going on the streets and risking covid-19 and that's a dilemma that that people are having to make for themselves about whether they want to try and facilitate reform that will allow them to to eat will allow them to have electricity will allow them to improve their situation existentially or whether they will try and and avoid getting covid but then face the 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 devastation of war violence or economic inflation stagnation whatever you want to however you want to describe what's happening in lebanon which i think is difficult because i think there's there's many different things happening in lebanon that that have created a a devastating storm for for the Lebanese and, and others living and working there. Um, I don't think it's going to mark the end because I think people are still protesting, particularly in Lebanon. Um, and that's because the anger, the grievance, are they're, they're deep. They run deep. But the, I think the, the end game will be if, if you see that more and more people are leaving, which they are. Lebanese are, are leaving the state, trying to find work elsewhere because they can't fathom living, trying to work, trying to engage with, with politics there. I mean, a couple of years ago, I spoke to someone who worked at one of the state universities and they told me that they'd been paid once in the past two years. And that was, yeah, that was 18 months ago now. So I can only imagine how bad things must be if that was the situation then. So, yeah, I, it's difficult. I mean, how, how you address that, I think, is, is a real challenge. In terms of the, the question about Yemen and failed, failing, weak, fragile, um, I, I don't like using ideas of failed or weak or fragile. Um, I think there are some problematic terms in international relations, and they are some of them because of the imposition of, of these understandings by typically white men in positions of power, sitting safely in the comfort of their homes thousands of miles away. I, I find that a bit problematic. So what I will say about Yemen is that what's happened is, has been absolutely devastating. It's a humanitarian crisis on an absolutely devastating scale and something has to be done. Um, 
creative diplomacy is key to getting a, a resolution at the regional level, the international level. But then also something has to happen domestically because it's not just the case of putting an end to the war with the Saudis, but it's also facilitating some form of, of peace building on the ground between the Houthis, between the government, between the Southern Transitional Council. And it may be that it's a, a separation of, of Yemen into two again that is the only way that creates some degree of, of space, physical, geographic space for various agendas to operate. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much. Um, and then Jonathan has another question. I think it might be our last question. If anybody else has any um, other questions, please do type them into the Q&A box now. So he see, says that there seems to be a transference of power in the GCC countries with um, Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi, with Mohammed bin Zayed in the UAE and Haytham bin Tariq in Oman. Uh, faced with overwhelmingly young populations, how do you think the states will manage increasing unemployment, uh, seeing as they are unable to financially support through public, uh, I assume public sector jobs? Yeah, that's a really difficult one. Um, and it's one that's been leading people to, to make the conclusion that we're heading for Arab Spring 2.0. And I should say, I, I'm using the term Arab Spring there because that's the conclusion that people have drawn. I think Arab Spring is problematic. Um, and I talk about the Arab uprisings in the book rather than Spring. But the conclusion that very uh, many analysts have, have reached is that the Arab Spring 2.0 is here because of economic factors, one, two, three, four, five. And it's easy to see why those conclusions have been reached. But if you look broader across, across the previous decades, you'll see that similar features of economic um, challenges have, have been there. You've had huge levels of capital flight, billions of dollars of capital flight um, across, the, across the past three or four decades, uh, huge levels of corruption. Obviously, that's central in what's happening in Lebanon and Iraq right now. Um, bloated public services, uh, huge huge swathes of people that want to get a job but can't because of the economic situation. Um, COVID is going to hit the, the Gulf economies in particular dramatically because of their reliance on tourism. And then you've got the, the youth bulge of increasing numbers of people who've gone to university who, who have this desire for a particular type of job. But then you've got massive levels of, of youth unemployment. Um, and in the book, I set out some of the challenges for, for people moving forward. And, and I addressed these economic and political concerns. I don't think there's an easy solution for it. I don't think there's an easy answer to some of these questions because it's going to take a, a, a reimagining of the, of the nature of politics here. And when we've seen this across, across the world, actually, when we've seen a reimagining of, of politics, there's there's always been a, a bit of a choppy ride to get to that reimagining. Um, Franz Fanon talked about reimagining politics as being a violent process. Now, I don't think that, that states seeking to engage in this type of transformation are aspiring for that type of violent transformation, but I would imagine that there would be a great deal of pushback from, from various places. And 
reimagining the the nature of the economy of the of political organization of institutional uh, makeups of fundamentally of relations between rulers and ruled requires people to to be patient to have imaginations to to be calm and and for rulers themselves to not take advantage of the various mechanisms of power that they have that they're able to deploy as a mechan as mechanisms of control when when things get heated and and unrest begins and i'm not sure that there is i'm not sure that there's the the imagination or the capacity to do all of these different things and that the I'm not sure that there's the institutional or political knowledge in some of the leaders to engage in such an existential transformation of the nature of political life. And that doesn't bode well for the future. Um, and then finally, I think, see, I always think it's the final question that someone sneaks in. Okay, so Merv, who asked you about this, uh, the processes, the symbiotic, processes earlier asks could you give some uh case studies of um phenomena that produce crises of legitimacy in in various countries in the middle east and maybe some examples of where these tensions were effectively uh, eliminated or dealt with yeah so what i didn't really touch on in the talk was religion and the reason for that is because i think it's such a, a key part of what's happened in the region that I, I dedicate a whole chapter to looking at, at religion and the ways in which religion has been used simultaneously as a means of of increasing legitimacy but also as a as a means of challenging the legitimacy of of the rulers and so i think I think religion is, is one of those ways where you can see this, this symbiotic relationship playing out. And I'll give two examples. One is that in, in various constitutions, you have, I, I talked earlier about all but four states in the region being um, explicitly Islamic and run in accordance with Islamic, um, Islamic credentials. So there's this sense that within that, and within the modern constitution, which has a clause that says the constitution can be suspended at a time of crisis in declaring a state of exception, you've got a tension because the sovereign is the person that determines when the exception is. But then if you look at the religious clauses and constitutions or the basic law in the Saudi state, you'll see that, um, that God is the source of sovereign power. So you have, a, you have an intellectual tension there over sovereignty. And I explore that a little bit in the book. But then you've also got this sense that, um, that religion is a double-edged sword and it has the capacity to, it has the capacity to legitimize, but also to criticize. And if you think about, I mean, Saudi Arabia is a good case here. Um, and I'm not saying anything original in the Saudi case. Um, Madawi al-Rashid's observed this, Joseph Kostner, Joseph Nevo have all observed that religion in the Saudi state is both a legitimizing factor and a, double and a source of negativity, a source of criticism, whereby the al-Saud hold themselves up to be the protectors of the two holy places of Islam. Um, but in doing so, they, they drag up their religious credentials to be so high that when they fail to meet them, that opens up space for, um, for criticism. 
And that's something that I explore in, in other cases, because I think that there you have this, this space whereby religion, culture, identity creates a certain set of expectations and a certain set of pressures whereby if you struggle to meet them, if you don't meet those expectations or those, um, those obligations, then you're left in a, in a difficult position because people can hold you to account for that. Perfect. Thank you so much. Okay, so um, I think that's all the questions for now. So I just wanted to close by saying thank you so much, Simon, for this um, talk. It's been super interesting and we've had loads of positive feedback in the chat. It's not just me. Um, and also just to let everyone know that the book is open, uh, is available uh, as open access from Manchester University Press. Is that right? It is. Yeah. Okay, perfect. So thank you so much for joining us today.